The Creek Church is a community of believers located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you would like more information about the Creek Church, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Good morning. Man, that, that was awesome. Then let me say to uh, all of our missionaries, welcome back home, guys. Thank you so much for the time, the effort, the money, everything that you sacrificed, not just you, but also your families. Thank you guys so much. I'd like to especially thank Ryan and Kim Jones. If you guys are here, would you mind standing up? Let's embarrass them for just a second. They are a part of Mana Worldwide, and from everything that I've heard of Mana Worldwide, just an incredible organization. Thank you guys for your hard work and for letting us come up there with you. And for all you guys, just so you know, part of what we did down there is we helped to build a church. We were part of teaching Bible clubs. We, we held a, uh, a baby shower for one of the national pastor's wives. And you gave away shoes and also water filtration systems to them. So thank you guys so much for stepping up and doing that. What an absolute blessing. And also, I'd like to say, um, as you saw in the, the announcements again, don't forget that we have Beach Club coming up. And that's going to be for grades third through fifth. It's such a great opportunity to get into the schools and to preach the gospel. And um, we're looking to get four or five people in there to do that. It's very minimal prep time. But like I said last week, such a great way to be able to get the gospel into the schools. And uh, today, we're going to be going through the second half of Romans chapter 10. And I'll be honest with you guys. If our church was, had enough foresight... We would have been ready for this sermon this week. The reason for that is so many missionary teams, they use the verses that we're going through today in order to provide the framework for why we go on missions. So if we, if we were good enough, we would have done that, we, but we're not. But God is that good. So these verses today, they're very much about going and sharing our faith with people. So it's, it's going to be a cool sermon. The last thing that I have for you guys is this was actually sent to us from the people of Nicaragua. And what this is, is it's a tree that was made, and each one of these leaves that you see on the tree, this is actually fingerprints from some of the kids that are down there. So we're supposed to be presenting this to Pastor Matt when he gets back. So if you guys won't tell him, I won't. And what we'll do, I'll just put this in my house, and you guys are welcome to come by and look at it at any time. We had a deal? Maybe? Okay. So today, Romans chapter 10, and before we go into Romans chapter 10, I do want to briefly discuss what we talked about last week because it builds upon it. And last week, we talked about the ways in which salvation comes, and we found out from Paul, as he's talking about the Jewish nation, that they are unsaved, that it's not our great efforts, our own self-righteousness that can save us. There's not enough that we can do to make ourselves right before God because his demands upon us is perfect righteousness, that we share his character of perfection and we can't do that on our own. We saw also that our zeal or our good effort and passion towards God can't save us either, that the foundational reason that we are saved is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that is it, that we bring nothing to the table. But what we talked about also was what does true faith look like because if we're saved by faith, then what is faith? Because we talk about belief and we talk about faith. And what we found out last week is that belief and faith, they come from the same root word in the Greek. One for faith is pistis. One for believe is pistuyo. 
And one's a noun and one's a verb. So it just uses those two words depending on where in the sentence structure it is. So faith and belief is the same thing. But what is faith? And to talk about that, we went through and we looked at James chapter 2. And James tells us that faith without works, in other words, faith that doesn't manifest itself into works, is a dead faith. And he used the polarizing example of even the demons believe the right things. Even though demons believe, but yet they tremble. So it's not just the head knowledge of knowing the right things. It's not just that it gives an emotional response, but it touches the will of man. In other words, we, looked, we talked about the parable of the sower and how as that word is received, it produces some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So today as we're going through Romans chapter 10, Paul is going to talk about the different ways in which people come to faith. Now the title of the message today is Salvation Through Revelation. So we're going to look specifically at those different ways that God gets his word, the fact that he is real to us so that salvation can come to man. Let's uh, open up to Romans 10, and I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm going to back it up one verse just because verse 13 is so good. But it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We, we know that salvation comes in no other name. Uh, Acts 4.12 tells, tells us there's only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved, and it's Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he says, and, and how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of, the, of those who preach the good news. Now, I've never been told in my life one time that I have beautiful feet. I mean, I've been told that they're stinky. I've been told that they're kind of deformed. In fact, I, I think sometime in my mother's womb, as my other toes started getting longer and longer, like my pinky toe just gave up. And it was like, it just bowed in reverence and curled into the other ones. But no one's told me my feet is beautiful, but Christ has told us that our feet are beautiful for those who go out and they share the word. What's interesting about these verses that we just read, though, is that Paul presents them to us in reverse order of what we normally think. We normally think of somebody is sent to preach, somebody hears that word, they believe in that word, and then they call upon the name of the Lord. But Paul starts it from calling on the name of the Lord and works his way down. So as we unpack this this morning, just these few verses for a minute, we're actually going to start in verse 15 and work our way up to 14, just so it makes a little bit more sense to us this morning. So 15, again, or half of, let's start in part C, if you will, of verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the first thing we want to point out, God's method of salvation includes a personal messenger. It includes somebody that has been sent by God in order for people to hear the message of salvation. So that's vital to understand. Jesus gave us the Great Commission. And we talked last week about how we've been saved specifically for a purpose. In other words, that we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Well, that's going to look different with everyone here. God has called us and wired us differently to do specific things. But there's one thing he's specifically called from the front row to the back, everyone who names the name of Christ to do, and that's to share their faith, to go out into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we are called to go out and make disciples, and that's going to look different 
Um, it's going to happen in different ways. For instance, today, I'm, I'm on a platform and I'm speaking to, to all you. But we look at Paul's day and we look also what we're called to do today. Some, sometimes he's at a street corner and he's telling people about Christ. Sometimes he's in a synagogue telling the Jews who already believe in the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah because we're to take the word first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Sometimes he's in jail giving the gospel. It looks different and it's in different places, but I want you to notice one thing. It's not always just about wherever you're at preaching the word of God. Sometimes it's Holy Spirit led as well. And what I mean by that is sometimes you have a desire to go speak to some people, but the Holy Spirit takes you somewhere else. And we see that in the life of Paul in Acts chapter 16. He has a strong desire to go to Asia. It says, but the Holy Spirit constrained him. And then he was going to go down to Bithynia in the same chapter, but the Holy Spirit constrained him again. And that night he ends up having a dream where there's a Macedonian man calling him over to the area of Macedonia. And Paul concludes that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is calling him to go into Macedonia to preach the word. So that begs the question for us, though. If we're called to tell the, word, to the, to tell the world about Christ, how does that look? Not so much what we say, but how does it look? And what spirit does it need to be done? Because I know we've all seen on the news or wherever, people with picket signs, people saying all manner of just hateful things to people under the name of Christ. The question is, how's it supposed to look? What does the Bible tell us it's supposed to look like? I want to read to you guys 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, because Paul talks about this. He says, And the Lord's servant, that's you and that's me, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Not just kind to some people, not just kind to the people that are nice to us, but kind to everyone. Able to teach patiently enduring evil. In other words, we're patient even in times of affliction, even when people are speaking all manner of evil against us. We're to be patient. And finally it says, verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So how's it supposed to look? We're to be kind, gentle, and patient when we give the word to people. That is the mode. That's the spirit behind what we're doing. Kind, gentle, and patient. Let's move on. Verse 14, it says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? In other words, how are they supposed to believe in the name of Christ if they've never heard the name of Christ? How does that happen? And if that hasn't happened, then how are they going to call upon him? The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that everyone who calls upon the name of Christ shall be saved. In other words, he's commissioned, he's directed, and he's already called us to go out into the world and to preach his word. But how does that happen? How does that regeneration happen? How does new birth come? God's method for salvation includes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of two absolutely necessary ingredients for someone to be saved. Absolutely necessary. Why do we say that? In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus that you must be born again. Nicodemus is marveling at it. And he says, how am I supposed to go back within my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus corrects him and says, no, 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 no. Flesh gives birth to flesh. In other words, if you went back into your mother's womb, you're just going to come back out the same way that you went in. The same thing. 
He says, spirit must give birth to spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit that comes upon us that convicts us. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, and it's the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into Christ and makes us a new creation into Christ. So the Holy Spirit empowers you. He empowers us, the believer. If you remember Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit gives us power to give his word, but it also convicts the hearer as well. I I think we have a a lot of times we focus on giving the message out to those to the ends of the world and to those in Samaria, or in other words, the areas of the, the nation that we don't feel like they want Christ. And those are great. We need to do that. We were called there. But I think we miss Jerusalem a lot of times. And Jerusalem's in our own backyard. Christ is sending us people all the time that have never heard the gospel into our own church. And are we sensitive enough to, to hear the Holy Spirit say, hey, go talk to that guy or go talk to that girl. Invite them to lunch. Let them get to know you. But God has called each one of us specifically to do that. Romans verse 16 here, it says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So not all have obeyed the gospel. Notice he mentions obeying. It's not just about hearing it again. It's about what does it do to our heart and has it impacted us enough to move us? Last week I gave him uh, an analogy of if somebody came and told me that lava was flowing towards my house and my future was imminent burning to death, man, if I believed that message, it would imply action. It'd mean that I would take my family that I loved and I would flee from the home. So there's an obeying or taking heed or exercising faith in the gospel that we've been given. But he goes on to quote Isaiah and says, Lord, who's believed our report? Unfortunately, not everybody and maybe not ever anybody, when you give them the gospel of Christ, does that necessarily mean that they're going to come to faith in Christ? Our expectation when we give the gospel, our expectation can't be salvation. We can't expect that people are going to be saved. Our expectation has to simply be obedience, to go out and do the things that Christ has asked us to do. Jesus told us that some men, they don't want to come to the faith. Some men... They enjoy what they're doing in the darkness and they wouldn't come to Christ lest their deeds be exposed. And Paul even said himself that some of you guys plant, some of you water, but it's God that gives the increase. If we go in expecting that people are gonna be saved, guess what? We're gonna be dejected when that doesn't happen. So we have to go in simply with obedience. Some of you are just planning. Some of you are just tossing the word out, but it's God who's gonna give the increase in that. So verse... Verse 18 here is when it gets really cool for me. I I love this verse, and I love the idea here, because what Paul is talking about here is he was talking about that that the Jews aren't saved. So he brings up these rhetorical questions that maybe one of his listeners might have been asking us, well, how can they be saved? How can they be saved unless someone is sent to them? How are they to be saved unless the name of Jesus Christ comes to their ears and they're able to call out on faith to that? Notice what he says in 18. But I ask... Have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul's saying they're without excuse because they have heard. In this section of scripture here, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the the world. This is a quote from Psalm chapter 19. 
in the first seven or eight verses of Psalm 19 deal specifically with the creation. And it says that the, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky shows his handiwork. That night after night and day after day, it's pouring forth speech showing the reality that there is a God. So he's saying they're without excuse, just simply from the creation and the creation showing us that there's a God. And if you remember, when we started Romans like 25 weeks ago or something, Romans chapter 1, Paul says the exact same thing to us. Romans 1 verse 20, he says, For his invisible attributes, in other words, the things you can't see about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. I want to go into a, a little bit of a time here to discuss something that you might have heard at some point. Some of you I know are very familiar with it, but it's a word called apologetics. And that comes from 2 Peter 3.15 where it says that all of us are called to have a defense for those who ask of the hope that lies within us. That word defense is apologia in the Greek, and it's where we get apologetics. It's talking about being able to talk to people and share your faith with them in a way that convinces them. And I want to give you just a few of them. Since Paul here is talking through evidence is just from design, evidence is just from creation, I want to share a few of those with you because they are awesome. But it's called, but God's method for salvation includes this type of revelation. It's called natural revelation. But the first one, it's called the teleological argument for God. And no, I did not just make that word up. The teleological argument for God. And what that says is that God exists through the evidences of intelligent design in nature. In other words, when we see the world, it should testify to us that there is a God. And, and the argument kind of goes like this. You've never walked up to the beach and picked up a Rolex watch and said, wow, look what time and chance created. Or you never go to Mount Rushmore and see the four faces of our president up there and go, wow, look what erosion and time have created. No, they're evidence. It's just natural to us to understand that there was a creator. There's somebody that designed that. And how much more complex is the universe? How much more complex are you with your DNA code and everything else that's so perfect? But what you find out and what scientists have found out is this world is precisely fine-tuned, I mean on a razor's edge, that if certain factors were just off a little bit, life wouldn't be possible, that this place is habitable and suitable for mankind, and it's perfect in its design. And I want to just read for, to you guys a couple of these because they're so cool. But here's a couple of them. If the tilt of the earth on its axis were any greater or less, life wouldn't be possible. If the distance from the earth to the sun were greater or less, life wouldn't be possible. If the gravitational interaction with the moon was any greater or less, life wouldn't be possible. And there's tons of these, but I think my favorite one is the gravitational constant because it's crazy. In fact, there's one for the proton and neutron. If it wasn't exactly 0.001 times the size, life wouldn't be possible. But, but back to the gravitational constant. The gravitational constant says this. If the gravitational constant were to shift by one part in 10 to the 40th power, life wouldn't be possible. That number doesn't mean anything to me either. So let me give you an analogy of what that number means because it's crazy. If you were to take a tape measure and you were to start it at Saginaw and you were to wrap it all the way around the world back to Saginaw 
If you were to move the gravitational constant just one inch, then life wouldn't be possible. That, that sounds pretty crazy, right? But that doesn't come close to one in 10 to the 40th power. You would have to take that same tape measure and stretch it from one end of the universe to the other. And this gravitational constant can still only move one inch. That is how precise nature is. That is how precise God has tuned this world. And it pours forth speech to us this morning, talking about the reality and the truth that God is there and he is a powerful and a perfect creator. That's right, amen. There's another one called the cosmological argument. And the cosmological argument says this, that the universe couldn't have created itself, but it must have had a first cause. In other words, there was an event that happened that caused everything that we see. And scientists understand this as well. Because the universe is still expanding. And and by the way, if the universe would have expanded any quicker in the beginning, it would have folded back on itself and life wouldn't be possible. So even the expansion rate of the universe is finely tuned. It's crazy the deeper and deeper you get into this. But what science and religion say, and we understand, is that there was a single point in time where all things came into existence. In other words, all space, matter, and time came into an existence at a single point. If you're a scientist, they call it the Big Bang. Big Bang. We say that God spoke it into existence, but whatever it was, that single point that was there created everything afterwards. So if space, matter, and time were all created at this single point, that means whatever was before it was spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. And that is exactly what the Bible declares about the God that we serve that he's spaceless and that he's outside of his creation, that he can inhabit all things at one time. He's timeless, he's eternal. And also he's not of matter, he's immaterial, he's spirit. So every sector in which we look, we see the evidences for God all around us that he is an incredibly powerful being. Amen. There's, there's other verses, there's, I'm sorry, there's other arguments for this as well that I would love for you guys to look up. One of them is called the ontological argument for God. Another one is called the moral argument for God. There's archaeological arguments for God. But I think my favorite one out of all of them, and I dare you to look it up, is called the transcendental argument for God. It is awesome. The transcendental argument, it proves the existence of God through the laws of logic. And talks about how an, an, a mind that is outside of our own must have authored those laws. But it is incredible. It's so good. But you have to think a lot. It's, um, it's on a website called CARM, the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry. They did a write-up on it that I, I highly suggest. But it's called the Transcendental Argument for God. Okay, so that's the first seven verses of Psalms that Paul says they're without excuse. They've heard simply from the creation but then after that, in verse 8 and following, for the next several verses, it starts talking about the, the revelation of God's own word. And what we're going to call that this morning is God's method for salvation includes special revelation. And that talks about his word. That's stuff like dreams and visions that God might use to bring men to himself. And, and I mentioned dreams and visions this morning because there's certain areas of the world, um, specifically Islamic countries, that the gospel, is, there's a huge barrier to get in, and it's very difficult to bring the gospel to those areas. But, but Muslims in mass amounts have been coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and you can read about this online. 
because of dreams and vision where, where Jesus Christ is personally appearing to them and telling them the gospel. It's amazing. But more often times than not, the way in which somebody comes to salvation in special revelation is through God's word. Remember I mentioned that the Holy Spirit was an absolute necessary ingredient? The second one is his word. In James 1.27, James is talking about it, and he says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And for me personally, this is the one that got me. When I found out about the revelation of God's word, it blew me away. For the first five years, I went on a study just of God's prophetic word. In other words, the fact that he could tell us from the beginning what's going to happen in the beginning, speak the future. I was amazed to find out, and depending on which scholar you look at, it's anywhere between 30 and 50% of the word, the Bible, is prophecy. Let's just go with a conservative number and say 33%. That's one out of every three pages God has devoted to be able to tell you the beginning from the end. No other religious book in history has the audacity to hang its truth claims on the fact that it can predict the future and nail it. 100% of the time. And that's where I was in my life. I thought, okay, if God is who he says he is, and he is outside of the dimension of time, meaning he can see the beginning, the end, the present, everything all at once, then he needs to be able to predict the future and get it right, not 90% of the time, because I can't have faith in that. He's going to have to get it right every single time. And I was blown away when I started reading the word. Do you know there's over, there's right around... 60 distinct prophecies of the first coming of Christ in the Old Testament. 60. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. That's mind-boggling. I was reading about it and trying to understand what the probability is. Here's another probability for you. That one man could just fulfill eight of these prophecies. And these are obscure prophecies. In other words, you had to be born in a specific area, Bethlehem, Ephratah, around a specific time period when crucifixion was happening. You had to ride a donkey in proclaiming you're a king. All these different things. I mean, just if you talk about around year 1 AD or something, that one man would be born in Bethlehem, you've already excluded most of the known world and most of time for being able to be the Messiah. But just for eight of those prophecies, get this. The probability is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. I don't get that number either. So, I was reading about what, what's a good analogy for that, and the guy gave a beautiful analogy. And this is, it's the same probability as this. Imagine that you take the state of Texas, not, not just this room, not just Saginaw, but the state of Texas. If you've driven across it, it's, it's kind of big. And you fill it two feet deep, the entire state, with, a, with silver dollars. You mark one of them red, You blindfold a guy and have him walk across it for days and just at random in this two feet deep pile, he picks up one. If he nailed it on the first time, that's the same probability that just one man would complete eight of the prophecies and Christ fulfilled 60. It's a testimony to the fact that we serve a God who is outside of time. He sees the beginning from the end. And this Bible that we have, this is special. This is anointed word. Each one of us should be digging into it, just trying to uncover every pearl of truth he has for us. No other religious book on the planet can do what our Bible does. It is specially anointed by God, and it testifies to us this morning that he is a being of absolute power and absolute love, and he desires 
you. Isaiah 46 verse 9 and 10 says this, For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. In other words, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen from the beginning. You'll be able to see it and what you'll notice is everything that I said and everything I've commanded will happen because that's the kind of God that I am. So, Paul starts this out saying that they're completely without excuse, the Jews. Simply from created order, natural revelation, and also spirit, special revelation, the word. And I have to say, Paul even says to us that men are without excuse everywhere. Let's finish up. Verse 19 and 20, it says, But I ask, did Israel not understand? In other words, okay, so they've heard the word, but did they not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. These are two prophetic words, one from Moses a thousand plus years before Christ came, the other one from Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ came. And what's it saying? That there was a prophesied time in history where God would move away from the nation of Israel and he would specifically reveal himself to the Gentile nations. Why? Not because God was done with Israel. There's a lot of theology that says he's done with Israel. He's not. The specific reason he has came to the Gentiles, one, is because he loves the world and he desires all to be saved, but two, it was to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. Why? That they may seek him and find him. One of the coolest sections in scripture, one of my favorite, is Luke chapter 4. And in Luke 4, Jesus is announcing his, uh, his ministry. He had just been baptized in the Jordan. He had just went out in the desert to be tempted by Satan. And he walks into a synagogue and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he starts to read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he takes the scroll, he closes it, and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ear. Can you imagine sitting in that synagogue service to have somebody so bold as to read a prophecy of the coming Messiah and say, today, this has been fulfilled in your ear? What's interesting to us today is we look back on that scripture and we notice something. God, Jesus, when he said that, he didn't stop at the end of the sentence. He stopped right before the end of the sentence and didn't say the last part. I want to read to you what the last part of that is. And the day of vengeance of our God. You see, Jesus came the first time not to be the conquering king. And that's why a lot of the, the Jewish people rejected him because they were looking for a conquering king to come in and overthrow the, the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus didn't do that. Why? Because he just told us what his first coming was all about. Salvation for the world. He came to be the lamb of God. But there's a coming time in history that's set aside specifically for Israel called the day of Jacob's trouble. It's that last seven-year period that a lot of the book of Revelation talks about. And the purpose behind that last seven years is to draw Israel back to himself. In fact, Jesus said, I won't come back again until Israel says, Baruch HaBashem, 
Adonai, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, there's a coming time on our history where God's purpose behind this point of time in history, this 70th week of Daniel, this last seven years, to draw the nation of Israel back to himself so he is not done with Israel. In fact, chapter 11 is going to get into that quite a bit, talking about how we are benefactors of the promises to Abraham. He hasn't rejected that, that we've been grafted in to this olive tree known as Israel. And because of the blessings to Abraham, which were non-conditional, we get to be a part of that. So chapter 11 is going to be awesome where it talks about that. But uh, I want to say one last thing at the last of this. The last verse says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I want to ask us the question, Do we have the same heart and passion that God just now told us that he has for Israel, that all day long he's holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. How how much do we push and how much are we diligent on talking to those around us about Christ? And I, I know that part of the issue is it's tough. It's tough to share our faith. No, nobody wants to be made fun of. Nobody wants to have relationships crumble or any of those things. But you know what? I don't think that that's the reason a lot of times that we don't share our faith. I think the reason a lot of times is we're worried that we're not going to have the answers for the hope that lies within us, that there's going to be questions that are asked that we're like, and I just don't know. I want to read to you a quote from Paul when he's talking to the Corinthians church, and I hope it builds your faith in this area. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5, Paul says, And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but, but they were in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The message is simple. The gospel is this. That this world has fallen. That we're sinners. We're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. And because of that, we're destined to hell apart from God. But God wasn't okay with that. And he sent his only son to die for those sins that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel message. Who's gonna call upon Jesus if they don't understand their need for a savior, the fact that they're destined for eternity away from God? There's no reason for a savior if we don't understand the gospel message in the Christian worldview. But that is the simple message, and that's what Paul said. I just came to you simply knowing that, but I came to you with the power of the Spirit of God. And the, whole, and the Holy Spirit has empowered each one of you to go out and share his word. Don't get lost in the, the teleologicals and the, the cosmological arguments. Yes, go learn those things because they're awesome and they'll build your faith. But we're dependent upon the Spirit of God and the gospel of Christ. And it's a simple message. Well, Trent, what about people that have never heard that message? What about people in far reaches of the country? How, how are they gonna know God? Well, we're called to go to him. But not only that, I want to read to you from Acts chapter 17 to close out. I know know we're done, but I just want to read this last verse. Talking about God, Paul says this to the men of Athens. 
He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In other words, Paul's saying there's not many races. There's one race, and it's the human race. He's called every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods. In other words, the time in which they would be. And also the boundaries of their dwelling place. So not only did God create you at the perfect time, he's put you in the perfect place. Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not that far from each one of us. God has placed everybody specifically in a time, in a place that we may come to know him. That's a beautiful thing that our father has done. God is patient and he's not willing that any should perish. But I hope to ask the question this morning and challenge you guys with, where are you at in sharing your faith? Even if it's not outside of these walls, what about inside? What about being intentional on the people that God even sends to our church? The gospel message is a simple one, and we don't have to have lofty words of wisdom to do it, but we must have the spirit of Christ to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you so much, Lord, that you've used Israel to bring us the gospel, that to them were given the oracles of God. And Lord, you've done an amazing thing. And I pray, God, that we can join with you and we can open up our hands just as Christ opened up his. Father, and draw men unto you. I pray that you anoint these guys, Father, with a passion and a fire to share their faith. Lord, we are who you've called to go out into the world. You're not dependent upon us, but you've asked us. And Father, I pray that each one of us, that we would simply say yes to your call. And Father, I pray you put people in our lives that we can tell the gospel to. And even if we're just the ones planting the word, God, we pray that there will be others that water But Lord, we're dependent upon you this morning for that increase and the work of the Spirit in their hearts. Lord God, if there is anyone in here today who's never made a profession of faith in you, I pray they come forward to the front of the stage today, Lord, and pray with me. Spirit of God, move through this place and remind the people that you came, Jesus, to proclaim liberty to the captives and that we are set free this morning and we're a people called by your name, anointed by your spirit, and Lord, with great things to do for you. We love you this morning, Father, and we thank you for a nation that we can worship you freely. And we pray for our nation, God, that she return to you. We love you. We thank you so much, Father, and we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Creek Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us, please visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Thank you.